Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast on the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 25th of February 2019 and this is episode 102. On today's programme, doctoral candidate Harry Sanderson from the University of Leeds discusses his research into the training of British infantry soldiers during the Great War. I spoke to Harry from his home in Leeds. Hi Harry, welcome to the podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in British infantry training during the Great War? Well really it comes out of never growing out of playing toy soldiers as a child and spending most of my childhood at the Royal Armouries in Leeds. I couldn't work out what I wanted to be when I finished, well, was doing my A-levels and I saw war studies as an undergrad option at Kent, went for it and luckily scraped in. And then my attention was focused on the Great War during a second year module with Ian Beckett. And it was a fact he said about um, on the opening day of the Somme and he goes on about the image of the men walking forward in a line to be mown down by German machine guns. And then he points out there was no actual doctrine. And so you get the 36 Ulster Division rushing the German line, etc., etc. And it was that distinction between academic history and popular perceptions that just immediately grabbed my interest. And I've never looked back with wanting to study the First World War. So tell, firstly, tell us about your study and why do you think it's needed? Um, so my thesis is titled unto the breach preparing the soldier for victory uh, in the british army 1914 to 1918 the reason i think it's needed is starting with the importance of battle to human history i mean roughly 95 percent of human civilizations have participated in warfare and then if we take clausewitz clausewitz's statement that combat is the only effective force in war because it's combat that destroys the enemy's army or forces the enemy's army to surrender or to act through the threat of destruction, it becomes clear that combat or battle is a key element in understanding human history. And within that, preparing men for battle is a key challenge faced uh, by military institutions. And also this has a key influence on the individual soldier as well. And the main way this is done is training. So that's where my study of training came from. And then the choice of the First World War in the British Army was due to the unique pressures uh, 1914 to 1918 placed on training. So firstly, with the mass expansion of the British Army, because at the start of the war, uh, the British Army was much smaller than its main rivals. It had about 245,000 regular soldiers with territorials and reservists. This became about 733,000. In contrast, Russia had 5 million men, Germany, 4.5 million men, roughly. Austria-Hungary, 3.35 million. France, about 3.8 million. So the British Army had to massively expand. And this places a whole new raft of pressures on training because it doesn't have the infrastructure. It doesn't have the instructors. It doesn't have the equipment. And because the British Army in pre-war is made of volunteers rather than conscripts, it's now recruiting from a whole new demographic base. I think most of the listeners would be familiar with the fact that the British Army pre-1914 is, well, the the lower, the other ranks is dominated by men from lower class, poor income backgrounds. Whereas with the new armies, 
sort of uh, volunteer formations that are initially raised, there is a much higher level of middle class or upper working class recruits in it. So it's a whole new demographic. And these men have different attitudes to discipline. They have different attitudes to service within the army. And that presents a major challenge. And then whilst this is going on, you also have um, what Antulio Echevarria has termed a crisis in the conduct of warfare, because over the previous century and right through to 1918, two major changes have occurred. One, linked to the previous mentioned point, armies have massively increased in size because there's new levels of political centralization, such as the unification of Germany, and populations have increased massively at the same time period. Secondly, the firepower available to armies has also increased exponentially because there's new technologies, smoothbore muskets that dominated in 1815, replaced by rifles, they can fire much further. They're then replaced by breech loaders and magazine loaders, which can also fire much quicker. You get major developments in artillery effectiveness and their range and uh, explosive power of artillery, machine guns. And then between 1914 and 1918, tanks and aeroplanes and chemical warfare all come into their own on the battlefield. So soldiers now have to be prepared to be under fire for longer Battles are much uh, greater in duration. So Waterloo lasts a day. The Battle of the Somme uh, lasts five months. Soldiers are in combat for longer. They're under fire for longer. And this, again, produces whole new pressures for training. They have to be trained to have greater individual morale. They have to be trained to endure deprivations for much longer on the battlefield. That's why I think this study is needed because it will examine the effectiveness of the British Army as an institution in meeting these demands. And it will also examine the individual's experience in how they were trained to meet these demands. So when we talk about training, what exactly do we mean in the context of infantry soldiers? How would you define training and its purpose? How I define training is basically lifted word for word for the British Army's training programme from August 1914, which has this excellent quote stating that, and I quote, the object to be aimed at in the training of the infantry soldier is to make him mentally and physically a better man than his adversary on the field of battle, end quote. Training at its core is enabling a soldier to achieve battlefield success. How this is achieved varies. There's never going to be one set method. It's process. Within the British Army in the First World War, they divided it into three key areas, three preliminaries of training. First, they had the inculcation of the development, sorry, of soldierly spirit. Second was the training of the body. And then third was training in the use of rifle, bayonet and spade. In my study, I've tweaked these slightly. So I've identified three sub-functions of training that in combination make the infantry soldier a better man than his adversary on the field of battle. So first, and arguably most importantly, training has to create the identity of the soldier. It has to take the civilian recruit and turn him into a soldier. This means conditioning him to obey orders, conditioning him to accept the discipline of the army, conditioning him to accept the authority of the army over his life. Um, And this can take multiple different methods, such from ranging from having uh, your hair cut, so the standard military buzz cut, which removes your individual identity and places you in the collective, or being 
lectured in the regimental history of the uh, of the formation you're joining so you understand you're part of a wider background second then is building of morale or self-confidence quite simply if you train a soldier to use his rifle he'll have more faith in it he'll put it to a greater use whereas a soldier who doesn't understand his weapon doesn't know how effective it is doesn't know how to use it won't be as confident on the battlefield and then last but not least is what i call combat skills so these are the tactical and technological skills required by soldiers so the ability to load your weapon the ability to fire your weapon accurately and the ability to act as a as part of a wider organization now within this training is divided into two areas so first is individual quite simply the skills an individual soldier requires so again being able to fire your rifle I should say individual versus collective is a contemporary term. It's used by the British Army in 1914. And then secondly is collective, which again quite simply means how to operate as part of a collective formation. So how do you operate within a company? How do you operate within a battalion? How do you operate within a brigade all the way up? So to give us some context and a starting point, can you give us some idea of the nature and purpose of infantry training before the Great War? Yeah, so... The great starting point for this is going to be uh, Spencer Jones' book, From Boer War to World War, um, where he covers this in quite a bit of detail, well, a lot of detail. Now, what's the key in this, for, what is the key influence on training pre-1914 is quite simply the size of the British Empire. Soldiers in, within the British Army have to be able to fight in a vast uh, variety of circumstances. So the jungles of New Zealand, you've got the Ashanti campaign, you get the Boer War, you get India, um, the mountain mountain ranges at the top of India there. So there's such a variety of circumstance possible for the British Army. It's undesired and also impossible to implement a centralised doctrine. Also affecting this is that there is no clear role for the British Army before August 1914, whether it's a colonial police force, whether it's going to operate within the continent of Europe or whether it's for uh, political st uh, stability at home is never really made clear. So all in all, there's no centralised method of waging war, which means there's no centralised training method. Instead, what happens is they prioritise individual skills, which can be easily transferred between theatres. This, this is the case after the Second Boer War between 1899 and 1902. So there's a major overhaul of training. The British soldier is focused on musketry, so rifle fire. And by 1914, it's certainly fair to claim the British soldier individually was the best trained in the world. But because of the lack of doctrine, collective training, so how to operate within a battalion or division, isn't very good. To put it simply, there's not this, there's a multitude of other factors that go into this. By 1914 the Germans are collectively trained better than the British. Probably the main example of this is within their use of, or the interaction between artillery and infantry, which is exposed quite cruelly at the Battle of Mons and Le Cateau, uh, because the Germans are simply able to batter the British um, into submission. In terms of the basic structure, pre-1914, quite simply, a recruit would arrive at a regimental depot He'd have up to six months preliminary training and then he's dispatched to join a battalion in a field where they take over the rest of his training and inculcate him into the existing systems. 
The main issue this poses is that there's no set period at what, which a recruit is dispatched to a battalion. They kind of trickle in throughout the year so they can arrive at massively differing points on the battalion's training schedule. So inculcating them and introducing them into the new formation is not a smooth process. So your study uh, examines infantry training in six British infantry divisions uh, during the First World War, and these are the 9th Scottish, the 18th Division, the 21st Division, the 31st Division, the 49th Division, and the 51st Highland Division. Why did you select these units? Quite The choice of six infantry divisions was because the British Expeditionary Force, BEF, on Western Front, it's too big to study the whole of it in any level of detail. So I decided to adopt um, the methodology used by Mark Connolly in his study of, in his work, The Buffs, where he focused on four battalions within a regiment, which in turn gives him four brigades and in turn gives him four divisions. Um, but I just increased it to six to get a slightly wider sample size. Within this six, I decided to choose three, quote, elite, end quote, divisions and three non-elite divisions. What elite and non-elite is, is a very cont contemporary, uh, uh, not contemporary, a very modern development. It's something used by historians. And that whilst there are references to certain formations being viewed as more effective in the First World War, most famously the Canadian Corps, it's never really formalized. I then chose, so choosing the elite divisions, I went with the 18th division, because every, almost everyone who studied the First World War should know the 18th Division on the 1st of July 1916, on the first day of the Somme. They're one of the few formations that are successful, and they are commanded by Ivor Maxey, who is constantly referenced as one of the more effective generals within the British Army. The 9th Scottish were again chosen because they're one that frequently cop, uh, crop up in references to effective divisions. This uh, The 9th, I think get this reputation largely thanks to Peter Simpkins' chapter co-stars or supporting cast, where he points out they had a 100% success record in the 100 days. And the 51st Highland Division are also, uh, they also gain a reputation for being an elite formation. And they certainly, during the First World War, helped feed the flames of this reputation themselves. So there were my three elite. The three non-elite were largely cho uh, chosen at random from what's left, excluding the Canadian Corps, the Australian Corps, and a few other divisions which uh, repeatedly crop up in these discussions of which is the most effective unit in the British Army. And that was the 21st, the 31st, and the 49th Division. The reason for this distinction was I wanted to compare and contrast. Were they training differently? Does training explain or to what extent does training explain the difference between an elite and a non-elite formation on the Western Front? The training that these soldiers received in these divisions reflected the nature and type of warfare that they were obviously fighting on the Western Front during the First World War. How did the nature of warfare change over this period? I think that's a question for a podcast in its own right. <laughs> Indeed. To give a brief summary, we now get We've moved on from the discussion of a learning curve to a learning process. How to begin? When the British Army goes to war in 1914, because of the focus on individual training, the infantryman is the key component within it. The infantryman is the main arm of the army. And this proves capable at the Battle of Mons, but it also proves vulnerable to technology. The German infantry, whilst not 
technically as capable as their British opponent, have heavier artillery and they have more artillery and they're able to batter the British. And this still inf and this inflicts very heavy casualties. Following this, well, following the emergence of trench warfare in September 1914, artillery quickly becomes well replaces infantry as the dominant arm. So you get a quote by Field Marshal Sir John French, who was commander in chief of the BEF in 1915, he says um, along the lines of breaking through is only is just a matter of the expenditure of high explosive ammunition. And in 1915 battles, it's believed that the artillery can defeat all, but this is quickly proven untrue, and it leads to some very bloody defeats by the British, where they achieve almost nothing at Orbers Ridge and Festubert. By 1916, whilst the artillery is still viewed as being able to dis uh, destroy the enemy, the emergence of combined arms is starting to begin. So the artillery and infantry operate in combination. And going back to the 18th Division, we see a very good early example of this on the 1st of July 1916, where they have their artillery barrage is not quite a creeping barrage. They haven't developed that yet where it literally creeps across the no man's land and the enemy trenches but it involves something around about 35 individual steps to it which is much closer to a creeping barrage than anything attempted previously and this requires a much greater level of infantry cooperation with the artillery because they have to be hot on the heels of it and this proves very effective and it gradually gets adopted into the BEF's doctrine as a whole and by 1917, the BF proves capable of conducting very effective operations using combined arms, where the infantry would advance just behind artillery. And the second the artillery barrage lifts off the German position, they would rush it. And this explains some of the great successes the British have on the opening days of major operations, such as the Battle of Arras and the Battle of Cambrai. By 1918, this method remains in place for against any fixed German positions. But by the time we get to the 100 days campaign, semi-open forward slash open warfare breaks out. And it's not necessarily possible or desirable to wait to formulate a combined arms approach. And you do get multiple instances of the infantry advancing by themselves or simply with artillery uh, to take German positions. So what did this mean for training is that the skills required by infantrymen changed dramatically over the course of the war. So beginning from about 1915, the, they had to be trained to use new weapons. So hand grenades, rifle grenades, light machine guns like the Lewis gun, all became a standard element of the infantry's training. They had to learn new tactics. So with trench warfare came bombing parties, which was a, a group of men used hand grenades to work their way up an enemy trench. They had to be trained in the basics of trench warfare. By 1917, they had to be trained in what I think is a revolutionary new development, which is platoon tactics, which emerged by 1917. And it replaces, it makes the platoon an army in miniature. Previously, every infantryman was a rifleman. Now, all of a sudden, within a platoon, you have artillery in the form of hand grenades and rifle grenades. You have machine guns with the Lewis guns and you have your riflemen who are to assault with the bayonet. And this allows them to operate independently. And it 
proves very effective. And really, up till the modern day, it remains the basics of infantry tactics around the world. And then on top of this, as aforementioned, there were new operational methods. So they were replaced by the artillery as the key battlefield unit. And then they had to learn to operate in combination with it. Uh, they had to learn to follow a creeping barrage very closely. They had to learn to operate in combination with tanks. They had to learn how to operate in combination with aeroplanes and our aerial obse uh, observation. So the skills required, uh, again, they changed dramatically. And this places major pressures on training. In the way that training was organised and delivered between the various uh, six infantry divisions that you're studying, did they vary at all? Yes and no. By 1917, training methods were actually quite widely disseminated. So one of the main training methods that gets repeated as being advanced and indicative of good practice is mock attacks, the construction of replicas of enemy positions over which you practice your attack. By the end of 1917, each division I'm studying had conducted mock attacks before a major attack at least once. However, there's no, so there's no clear divide between elite or non-elite with regard to this. For example, the 21st Division was conducting practice or mock attacks by the end of 1915. So that's well before the 51st Division first made use of them, which was towards the end of 1916. Yet it's the 51st Division that go on to be successful and gain their reputation of elite, whereas the 21st Division, whilst by no means a bad division, and actually in many cases an effective one, doesn't gain the same reputation. What distinguishes elite divisions is the commanders they had, who tended to prioritise training and were de determined to maximise its effectiveness. So the most obvious example of this is Maxi with the 18th, and Maxi's famous for him, the priority he placed on training. And then there's also Major General Harper with the 51st Division. The 9th Division slightly trickier with this because they have a much uh, greater number of commanders. They have uh, General Langdon in 1915, who's replaced, who's sent home ill. He's replaced by... Uh, Major General First, who's killed at the Battle of Lu, and by the end of the war, they've had nine different uh, divisional commanders, I believe, off the top of my head, ending with uh, Major General Tudor. What is a clear distinction that can be made in the first two years of the war is with grenade training. Now, the three elite formations all made major efforts to train every infantryman to use grenades. Uh, they even resorted at one point to inserting pins into turnips for practice because they couldn't find any actual hand grenades to use. In contrast, the non-elite formations entirely focused on bombing parties being specialist enterprises. So you nominated certain men to, be, to join a bombing party and then they trained separately. And they focused all their grenade training on these bombing parties. They didn't focus on training everyone. Now, this had a major effect. Because when bombers or bombing parties took heavy casualties, which they're always going to do because they're at the forefront of the advance, the elite divisions were able to replace them quickly. They simply, every man was trained so every man could join a bombing party. Whereas for the non-elite, once they lost their bombers, they had to train them from scratch. They couldn't just replace them. Best example of this is with the 6th West Yorkshire 
6th Battalion West Yorkshire Regiment, who are in the 49th West Riding Division. So on 3 September 1916, they take part in a disastrous attack on the Somme, in which about 80 of their men enter the German trench, but the rest end up back in their own. And these 80 men are quickly surrounded, they're killed, captured, wounded, they're all casualties. Now this is disastrous because of those 80 men, how it happens those 80 men are the best men in the regiment. They're the ones, the best men in the battalion, sorry. They're the ones with the combat motivation to get into the German trench. And it also happens to include all the battalion's bombers, pretty much. So in one, in one day, the battalion has lost their best men. It has lost the ones with the most combat motivation. And it has lost their bombers. And it doesn't have anywhere quickly to replace them. And there's talk at this point of actually disbanding the, uh, the battalion entirely. Fortunately for them... They get a last-minute reprieve. But it's not until uh, the German spring offensive of 1918 that they're actually used in any major capacity again. And that's really from need, not choice. So when you look at the training in these six divisions, what what can you learn uh, about the British Army as an institution in the way it adapted and met the new challenges of preparing soldiers for, for industrial warf- warfare on the Western Front? Overall, my assessment would be the British Army was effective but there's an important caveat here that it's effective within the existing institutional framework. Because of the size of the British Army, uh, British Empire, because of the no precise role, the British Army has a very devolved framework. Authority is it's not held in great quantities on high. Local commanders are given a lot of free reign. And you see this with a stationary service uh, SS pamphlet which was the main way the BEF disseminated doctrine on the Western Front. And there's SS-152, which aimed to set out a standardised training programme for the British Army in the First World War. And it says that nothing should detract from the local commander's authority over training as soldiers. So it's saying at one point we need to standardise, at the second local commanders have, have authority over training, which does create problems because... Obviously, not every lo- local commander has the same ideas, the same determination to train, the same attitudes towards it. But it's easy to say the British Army could have been prescriptive, but they, within the, that would have required completely redesigning the existing framework of the British Army, which is just not possible. So within this institutional framework of devolution or devolution of authority, the British Army is actually effective at disseminating what best practices for training, which is shown by the fact each division by 1917 was conducting mock attacks. And whereas, by ni- whereas in 1915, mock attacks were almost purely a divisional level, level training method. By 3rd Eep and by Cambrai, formations are able to turn up at training facilities maintained at the field army level, where they have pre-built uh, replicas of the German trenches for training over. So there is a move or there is an increase in the level of centralization of training within this framework. And again, they disseminate best practice quite well. So, yeah, overall, I think the British Army was effective in adapting training to meet the new challenges of preparing soldiers for battle. And the penultimate question is, what influence did training have on the individual soldier? Right. For this Due to the stage my research is at, I can only speak about mock attacks, which so 
building a replica of their enemy position and practicing the assault over it. And there's both positive and weak influences within this, which is another factor why I think this study is important, because mock attacks tend to be put forward as a best practice, but there are weaknesses within them and problems from using them as, an only, as a training method. So beginning with the benefits, there are main actual benefits of mock attacks aren't tactical, but it's to do with morale. Mock attacks greatly increase cohesion, morale, and combat motivation within the individual soldier. Simply put, for cohesion, mock attacks teach the soldier or train the soldier to know where his objective is. They're no longer reliant on a junior officer or an NCO to lead them. This means when junior officers take casualties, and they do, I think most people would know that junior officers proportionally suffer the heaviest casualties in the First World War within the British Army. When these casualties occur, the attack doesn't lose cohesion. Privates, lance corporals know where they need to go, and they're, they're determined to get there. A great example of this, I go back to the 18th Division at the Battle of the Somme, with the 8th Battalion East Surrey Regiment. Now, their C Company, um, one platoon in their C Company, has every man besides one become a casualty. Yet this one man, who is a private, eventually arrives at his final objective and reports in as having completed his task. If he hadn't done the mock attacks, he wouldn't have known how to get to his objective or where his objective was. He wouldn't have been able to continue with the casualties. And there's other examples replete throughout the uh, First World War where mock attacks enable this level of cohesion, enable, enable formations to endure heavier casualties than would otherwise be possible. Simply... Also, with uh, morale and combat motivation, these mock attacks could also, they also taught a soldier what his role was within the wider attack. This was a prior prioritized by the 18th and 51st Division. They went to great efforts to tell the soldiers, you're doing this, so the man, the, the formation on your right can do that. If you fail to do this, they're going to get enfiladed, fired by machine guns, they're going to get massacred, etc., etc., by teaching a soldier exactly what he needs to do and how this affects his wider battle, again, it creates, um, improves the determination or combat motivation for a soldier to fulfill his task. But the negatives of mock attack are then that it can create what I call overly disciplined soldiers. I think everyone could understand if you train to do a single thing time after time after time after time, and then you're suddenly asked to do something else, it's going to prove a challenge. And this is true for the formations um, within the British Army when they do mock attacks. For example, um, and basically it means that when the situation change, changes, soldiers can struggle to adapt. A really good example of this is within the 21st Division. So in January 1916, they dig about three foot deep German trenches to practice trench raids over with multiple formations. Now, this teaches the soldiers the good things. It teaches them the layout of the German trenches. It teaches them where to go. But the soldiers also become accustomed to being able to see above the German trench. They can see where their other uh, friends are in a separate um, trench. They can see what process the progress the other attack is making. However, when they actually begin the attack, and they find the German trenches are about 10 feet deep, and there's no way they can see the other formations, 
they become confused. They become they become worried, and the attack kind of breaks. The, the trench raid breaks down because they're no longer confident because they can't see the other squads they've been able to see at training, and they become uncertain and indecisive. Other examples of this is with creeping barrages, because the distance for a creeping barrage to advance, or the pace at which it advances, is never set. So you get formations who have trained at one pace, suddenly being um, been told they need to conduct follow a creeping barrage at another pace, and they don't, and they end up walking into their own creeping barrage and incurring, ca incurring casualties from this. Um, the 9th Division seem to have a remarkable ability to walk into their own creeping barrage every time they use it. I think it happens at every major attack they do in 1917. And also, last but not least, the skills learned aren't necessarily transferable. Going back to the 18th Division at the Somme, because this is just this really good example, on the 1st of July, they've been conducting mock attacks for about a, w a month, learning how to take a German trench system. Two weeks later, they're suddenly tasked with the capture of Delville Wood and Trones Wood on the 14th and 17th of July. This is a completely different environment. There aren't trenches. Instead, it's a bewildering mass of fallen trees. It's cluttered undergrowth, and it's heavily improvised positions in woods that have been decimated by artillery fire. In these conditions, what they had learned in the uh, mock attacks simply did not apply. Instead, what they fell back on was the individual skills they'd been taught. And what my research, the direction it's moving in, is that it's the individual skills upon which soldiers fall back time and time again. Um, because mock attacks, there's not there's never enough opportunity to conduct them before every attack. And this is the major weakness of mock attacks. You need to know what position you're going to be assaulting, and you need to know well in advance. If you don't know where your objective is, you don't know what German positions you're going to be assaulting, how can you, con how can you construct replicas of their trenches? And this ties into what is, in my opinion, the major failing of British generals and GHQ throughout the war, is that when it's the opening day of an offensive, they always plan in advance and allow mock attacks to take place and this allows success to be achieved so arras even third eep cambrai the second the success achieved is they it goes straight to their head they get over ambitious and they insist attacks are rushed hurried and quickly made again to follow it up but this is against improvised positions that weren't previously known so the formations can't train to take them and once they've been used to conducting practice attacks or mock attacks as training, suddenly they're told, improvise, do what you need to do to go to that place and uh, capture it from the Germans. And they're not capable of this level of initiative because they've been overtrained um, in a certain method. This also means by 1918, mock attacks almost completely die out within the British Army. Uh, there's two examples of them being used in 1918 from the 6th Division's I studied compared to about 15 in 1917 because German positions are now improvised. There's rapid attacks made at short notice. So there's no time to dig uh, replicas. There's no time to train over them extensively. So yeah, major weakness of mock attacks is the, uh, they create an over-discipline and they can stifle initiative within soldiers. And going back to a distinction between elite and non-elite, elite formations actually tended to use mock attacks more sparingly. They'd mix things up. So they'd do a mock attack one day and then individual training or 
um, field exercises against a different position the second day rather than simply repeating the same attack over and over again. And finally, Harry, where can people learn more about your research? At the moment, nowhere. Um, if you're a historian, so academic, or you just you've done um, you just write books. There's a conference I'm co-organising at the University of Leeds um, in June of this year for the War and Peace Research Cluster. Details of which you can find on the War and Peace Research uh, Cluster Twitter where I'll be presenting a paper on mock attacks. So if you want to turn up and give a paper, you'll be able to hear my dulcet tones again. Other than that, um, it's a question of waiting for journal articles, add my PhD to be completed, and fingers crossed, published afterwards. And what's your time scale for that? I'm a year and a half into it now, so it'll be roughly two years' time uh, to finish the PhD. Harry, thank you very much for your time. Cheers. Thank you. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>